Dr. T.C. Hom. He's back with us this year. Uh, and as you know, he's a, he's a great, energetic uh, teacher and speaker, and, and many people have asked to uh, have him back. So please welcome him uh, with continued attendance the next few weeks as we study the book of Ruth. T.C. will be away one week, and our friend uh, Van Mischief, who many of you know, who's been a, a, a great teacher of the Old Testament, is going to fill in that week with T.C.'s guidance and, and leave uh, his homework and instructions for him. So I think it's going to be an exciting study. And uh, we welcome your questions as we go through. And uh, let's open with prayer. Father God, we, we are here today because in our hearts we seek you, we love you, we want to know you, and you reveal yourself to us in, in so many ways, uh, through nature and through sights and, and sounds, too numerous, too many, too large to understand. And when the word becomes a mystery to us, we just humble ourselves and ask, as we do now, that you send your Holy Spirit and illuminate us so that we can continue on in our praise, our ad admiration, and our love for you, that we can create the intimacy of a relationship with you and that our affection continues to grow. Not because of right doing, but because of right being. Right being of heart and of mind. And to this, again, we ask your blessing to this day and our teacher and to each of our hearts as we continue in our journey, as we continue in our relationship with you. And in Jesus' name we pray these things. Amen. Uh, you're going to have to excuse me. I, I'm, I'm at the tail end of a cold, so um, I'm, I'm going to have to mute sometimes to get a cough out. Um, I am really excited about the book of Ruth. And uh, I think last time we went, when we worked our way through Jonah, we were able to do it verse by verse, essentially. Uh, and I think we should be able to do that with Ruth. Ruth is, again, four chapters, so it works out nicely for four weeks. Uh, it's a little longer than the book of Jonah, so we may have to skip through some of those verses a little quickly than others. Uh, and, and, but can I just say, the book, it, I know you're not supposed to have like, your favorite children, you're not supposed to have your favorite uh, book of the Bible. Ruth is my favorite, absolute favorite. Uh, I read the book of Ruth probably at least once a semester just to uh, re-energize myself uh, on teaching the Bible because it's such a rich literature uh, filled with deep, profound theological truths. Um, and if I had the least favorite, it would be like the book of Leviticus, like most people, right? <laughs> <laughs> I don't read that book very often. I should sometimes go back and read it, but it's been a couple of years, uh, and I think that's okay. I'm not offering sacrifices, so I, need to, I don't need to look up how to sprinkle so many times in each side of the altar. Um, the other reason I, I like the book of Ruth so much is this. In, in my experience of God, I have personally have never witnessed uh, a Red Sea splitting kind of a moment. Um, I know other people have like, witnessed genuine miracles. Uh, in my life, they've been kind of lacking. Um, not that God hasn't been around, and somewhat miraculous things have happened to me. In fact, the, my very existence is somewhat miraculous. I was two, I was two months premature in birth in, in Korea when medicine was not well developed. And uh, they had actually just cast me aside and said, oh, we've got to save the mother. She was quite malnourished, and um, just my existence alone is a miracle, apparently. Uh, but I don't see the manna falling. I don't see the Red, S Red Sea splitting. I don't see Lazarus um, raised from the dead. But I do see the hand of God in everyday moments, and especially when you look backwards over your life. And I think uh, I'm, I'm appreciating that. Kierkegaard said that you can live your life forward, but examine it backwards. And when, as Christians, when we examine our life backwards, we see the hand of God in these, what we thought at the time, either coincidences or just, you know, our decisions that we've made. Uh, but when you look backwards, you see the hand of God, and that's precisely the book of Ruth. In fact, God never does anything in the book of Ruth. God is mentioned many, many times, but often it's, God is mentioned in the, in, on the lips of other people. May the Lord do this. 
Uh, or sometimes a narrator say, uh, says that Naomi heard that God visited Bethlehem. Uh, but God isn't intervening in history. So my experience of God is very much like Ruth's experience of God. And the other reason I love the book of Ruth so much is, is it's a romance. <laughs> I love romances. Uh, in, in fact, I, I know I'm, I'm a god, I'm not supposed to admit that. Uh, but when my wife checks out romance novels from the library, I read them first. <laughs> um, I, I'm a romantic at heart, uh, through and through. <laughs> so uh, the book of Ruth is, is truly a romantic book. Uh, you don't, I mean, there's a, a whole other book called Song of Songs that deals with sex and love. But it's not, I'm not sure you can call it romantic. Sometimes graphic. Uh, but not necessarily romantic, but the book of Ruth is quite, quite romantic. So I'll, I'll point those things out to you. Um, before, we get through, uh, before we get to the text, I'd, I'd like to do an exercise and see if we, can do, if we can come up with a way to do this. There's going to be a word in, in Hebrew in the book of Ruth that English does not have an equivalent. So if you speak more than two languages, often you find yourself sometimes stuck I have this word in this language, but there's no counterpart in, in English. Or I have this wonderful wo word in English, like the word awesome in English does not exist in Korean. So when I want to say something like awe-inspiring or awesome, I have to use other words, kind of go around it. So I, I want to do an exercise with all of us. So pretend that <coughs> you came <coughs> to this country and you're learning English and you've mastered it. Okay, you've mastered the English language, but you have another language in which the word love exists. The word love exists in your other language. But let's pretend for a while that the word love does not exist in English, okay? So the word love does not exist in English, so we have to express that word somehow. How would you explain to me, who only speaks English, let's say, about the word love, since love does not exist in English. How would you do that? Okay, excellent, it's an emotion. Is it just an emotion? Caring. Caring, okay, care. It's sacrifice, I like that, sacrifice. What else? Warm-hearted, warm. There's a warmth to it, isn't it? Exhilarating. Exhilarating. Sometimes. <laughs> Exhilarating. Sorry. Relational. Relational. Yes, relationship. What else? Unselfish. Unselfish. Have we exhausted love? How else? God is love. There's somehow, God is involved in this definition. How else? Would, so when I say to my wife, I love you, and she goes, what do you mean? Because she doesn't speak, I mean, she says, I don't know what the word love is. What is that strange word that you're saying? And I have to say, well, I mean, I feel unselfish emotion, and I care about you, and I would sacrifice for you. We have a relationship. Sometimes it's exhilarating, sometimes it's frustrating. Uh, <laughs> there's a warmth I feel towards you. Are we done? What else? Let's, let's see if we can just kind of almost exhaustively define love. Passion, yeah, there's passion involved. Desire. Desire. Oh, yeah. Oh, how do I write that? Um, in spite of, oh, yeah, I like that. Unconditional. Patient. <coughs> kind. Now you're just citing First <laughs> Corinthians 13. All right, so, so let's say uh, somehow you were able to communicate to me, oh, okay, that's what that word is. Do I really get that word? 
Um, here's this word love. And you've made these contact points, trying to define it in ways, because we don't have a word for it, we have to use all these other words to, to illustrate what that word is. In, in most, most of, you know, when you're going from one target language or one language to another, usually there's some, what they call semantic domain overlap. So in, in for example, uh, there might be the English word love, and say the, the Italian word, amore, right? So, and they're not exact overlaps. So there might be love here, and amore here, and there's an overlap enough so we can translate from this word to that word. And so semantic domains help us when they overlap. Often, you only get a partial overlap, because no language is exactly alike when you have no semantic overlap at all. This is what we have to do. And there is a Hebrew word that even the word love is insufficient to describe. You might have heard of this word. It's sometimes written out this way. The Hebrew word is pronounced chesed. Chesed. We should all learn that word. It's a very, very powerful word, like the English word love. So let's, let's try it. Ready? Chesed. That was actually quite good. Uh, the guttural is hard, right? Chesed. Not chesed, chesed. And the accent is on the first syllable, chesed. Okay, so how do I define chesed without the ability to simply translate it into English, since English lacks this word. There is no semantic overlap with this word. So if chesed is here, I'm just gonna write the continental text right there, chesed. How do I describe this? One overlap, or one contact point, since there's no overlap, is the word love. Grace. Mercy. Now here's a kicker. Loyalty. Or faithfulness. Kind. Often, very often, condescension, in a good way. Just the way we condescend to our kids when we talk to, talk to them at their level. This is not in a negative way. Uh, the incarnation of God to human, human humanity is condescension of God, right? So often, not always, but often condescension. Hope. Affection. In fact, um, every possible emotion or volition, a willful decision, or a relationship in a covenant, this is a covenantal term. The only covenant that I'm currently in is with my wife. Uh, so I, so I, we've been married now 18 years, been together for about 20. And all of those things we could feel toward each other or, or have toward each other. And, and yet, because we don't have this word in English, it's, it's very difficult to understand. And this, this chesed will become a key around which the book of Ruth uh, revolves. And so much of the Bible, by the way. This is a key word, not just in the book of Ruth, but in the Bible. This is how God feels toward the people. God's chesed. And God becomes hurt and angry when the people abandon their chesed toward God. 
Often in English, because we don't have this word, uh, in English invented a word, love and kindness, and smushed it together and made it loving kindness. So when you see in most English translations, loving kindness, it's that word. But it's, again, it's not sufficient to just say love and kindness. It's all those other things. Um, so let's, let's keep that in mind as we read the book of Ruth. And if you have your Bibles, uh, we'll, we'll, work, we'll begin our way through from the beginning and just work all the way through to the end. Hopefully we'll get to the end in uh, four weeks. Or five weeks total, right? Are you in the book of Ruth? Okay. And it was in the days when the judges judged, there was a famine in the land. And a man from Bethlehem went, a man from Bethlehem of Judah went to sojourn or live in the fields of Moab. He, his wife, and his two sons. Begins like any other short story might. There was a man, there was a famine, and he moves. Now the interesting thing about that phrase, the setting, is the Hebrew says here, uh, in the days when the judging of the judges. It's a strange idiom. It's a strange phrase. In fact, not an idiom. Um, it, it, it emphasizes the setting without spending too much time on it. Short stories, you know, as you know, I love reading Hemingway short stories. Short stories, you have to build things fast. Characterization has to be done fast. Setting has to be done fast. But so there's efficiency of language in Ruth. And one way they do that is through this repeated word. Hebrew loves to repeat words. The last time when we did Jonah, we saw certain words repeating over and over and over. Um, here, it's the same word, shafat, repeated back to back. It says, in the days when the shafat, shafated, when the judges judged, when the shofet, uh, the, so why is that? Why, why is the author already bringing us into the setting? Here's why. Do you remember the book of Judges? Not a happy time, is it? Very dark time in Israel's history. Uh, horrible things happen in the book of Judges. In fact, when, when, if you read the, the Bible canonically, uh, the book of Judges and Ruth are related in a way. And in the book of Judges, the, the book ends with a terrible, terrible story. Um, I, I'm not sure if you're familiar with it. Uh, I'm glad we're all adults here. It's not meant for children. There is a Levite and a concubine who's traveling and who, who come to a, a city. And it's very similar to kind of the, the Sodom and Gomorrah story. Men come and want to rape the man, who's the Levite man, who's, who's staying with them. And the host says, no, 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 we have a I have a daughter. I'll, take, I'll send out my daughter. Uh, and the Levite says, no, it's okay. I'll just push out my concubine. The concubine gets pushed out. And all night long, she's raped by these men. And in the morning, behold, it says, her hands are clutching the, the threshold and we don't know if she's living or dead. And then the Levite chops her up into pieces and sends her all over uh, Israel to start a war. And a very, very dark time in Israel, especially for women. And here's a story about a woman, Ruth, and Naomi, by the way, uh, and it begins in the period of the judges. So you're supposed to think, and by the way, the book of Ruth was written much, much later, as we will be able to tell from the text itself. The author has to explain old customs that was happening in the book of Ruth, which means it was written not at the time of Ruth, but later. Uh, so the author says, in the days when the judging of the judges were happening. Oh, dark time. And in this very dark time, we have this very bright and light story of Ruth and Boaz. By the way, there's also a playful thing happening there. Beit Lechem, Bethlehem uh, in Hebrew means house of bread. Beit, house, Lechem, bread, house of bread. And there's a famine there. So there's no bread in the house of bread. So this guy named Elimelech is going to move to the fields of Moab. Verse two. The name of the man uh, was Elimelech. Elimelech, I think you say it. And the name of, the, uh, name of his wife was Naomi. 
And the names of his two sons were Machlon and Chilion, Ephratites uh, from Bethlehem of Judah. And they entered the fields of Moab, uh, and they lived there. All right, I, I have to pause again. Names in the Bible are tricky. Names in the Bible are always very tricky. Do you know a guy named Jedediah? Yedediah in Hebrew? But do you know a guy named Solomon? Same person. Given name, the name that he was known by. Uh, what was Israel's name before it was Israel? Jacob, Yaakov. Yaakov becomes Yisrael. Uh, names in the Bible are tricky in the sense that we tend to think of names as a, just a permanent, you're given a name and it sticks with you. Uh, but it's not quite like that in the Bible. Often, names change. Often, almost, almost every time, names change. And if you get known by something else later, that's the name that you're called from that point on in stories forever, including Solomon, man of peace. So was he called a man of peace upon birth? No, he was called a beloved one, Jedediah. And then he gets called Shalomo, a man of shalom, peace, much, much later, because his father was a man of war. So names are tricky. And this guy's name right here, Eli Melech, means my God king. Eli, my God king, Melech. Great name. Naomi, lovely, pleasant. She's going to lose her husband and her sons. And her name is pleasant and lovely. But the, the, the two uh, sons' names, Machlon and Chilion, are sickly and weakly. And they are going to die. So sickly, weakly, die. Were they named sickly and weakly? Probably not. Names are going to be really, really significant in the book of Ruth, okay? So keep that in mind. Uh, so this very Jewish-sounding, good Hebrew name, Eli Melech, Eli Melech, uh, has two, two kids, <laughs> and their, name, their names are Machlon and Kilion. The own ending there, Machlon, Kilion, are, that's got a, a diminutive. Uh, like, I call, I don't, my son's name is Thomas, and he's 13, and he doesn't like to be called Tommy, because it sounds too young. So in English, adding an E is kind of a diminutive, a little kid, Bobby, Georgie. So, uh, and the French et, like cigar is a big cigar, and a cigarette is a small one, so those endings are diminutives, and own is a diminutive. So Kilion, Machlon, is like little sicky. <laughs> a little, little weakly, and they die. And they were, these were grown men, by the way, right? Because uh, they take up wives. Did you notice a repetition of Beit Lechem, Yehuda, Beit, uh, Bethlehem of Judah, Bethlehem of Judah, already a couple of times? The story begins in Bethlehem. Now, what's significant about Bethlehem in the Old Testament? In the New Testament, of course, it's the birthplace of Jesus, but you guys know where, what Bethlehem is significant for in the Old Testament? David. David, right, it's the city of David, that's where he's from. Of course, the son of David is going to be born there too, which is our Lord Jesus Christ. Verse three, oh, and then Elimelech dies. And then it says Elimelech, the husband of Naomi. We already knew this, that information is Superious. We don't need that information. But the author is pointing out, all right, the, the story is not about Elimelech. The story is going to be about Naomi. And Naomi, uh, it, this, the whole story from this point on, for a while, until chapter 2, is going to be from the perspective of, uh, of Naomi. So Elimelech, the husband of Naomi, died. Then she was left... Uh, there's a, the, the word she there doesn't have to exist in Hebrew. Hebrew can use the verbal form without any kind of uh, pr pronoun following it because the verb includes the third person feminine singular. But it emphasizes she here. She was left with her two sons. Verse four. They took up for themselves Moabite women, means they married them, and the name of the first one was Orpah, and the name of the second was Ruth. 
And they lived there about 10 years. So the story is moving, kind of fast forwarding. So they got, they were settled, these grown men, Machlon, Kilion, take up Moabite women since they're there, uh, and they lived there for about 10 years. Remember I said names are significant? Orpa, uh, in Hebrew means back of the neck. How would you name your kid back of the neck? It's probably not her real name, given name. Ruth means companion friend. We will soon find out why Orpah is called the back of the neck <laughs> and Ruth companion. But they're, notice they're introduced together. Um, Hebrew characterization can happen quickly, like especially in short stories. And one way to do that is to use a character called a foil. So this is a literary term. Foil is, is a character who exists only to contrast the important character. So Orpah really exists in the story. I mean, the author, the narrator, didn't even have to include her in the story, but she's included to contrast her to Ruth, and often foils will come on the scene at the same time as the person being contrasted with. So Orpah and Ruth are introduced together. Trying to think if there's anything else to note about that verse. <clears throat> no, 10 years, that's good. All right, verse five. <laughs> I only have 30 more minutes, is that right? <laughs> We're not gonna make it through this first chapter, are we? <laughs> All right, let's, 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 uh, let's, let's keep going. Oh, and then the next word, by the way, and he, Hebrew likes the verbs, come, verbs to come first. So the, the previous word was they took up. The word before that was, and then he died. Elimelech died, they took up. And then this word again is, and then somebody dies again. So somebody dies, who? Also, the two sons, um, Machlon and Kilion died. Oh, poor Naomi. Uh, again, the perspective is Naomi's perspective. So she is left, she was left without. I guess that's how you would have, she remained, uh, or she survives her, her, her husband and her two sons. And here the word, the two sons, I don't know, does your translation say two children? Two sons? The word is yelled there, and it's usually the word is only referred to little kids, yelled. Um, and it should have it should have sounded strange, like what? Why are grown men called yelled? It's almost in English we use uh, the word children for grown children too. That's the relationship that we have, so we don't really understand why this word is being used here. Because uh, of course, you're still, you're, it's still their, her children. No, in, in the Hebrew, it would not have been children but now it's children. So it's almost as if these little kids that she had uh, died. So um, when I tell poor Naomi, yeah, it's, it's the author's trying to draw our sympathy to Naomi, her kids died. So she was left without her two sons and her husband. Then in verse six, she rose with her daughters-in-law to return from the fields of Moab uh, because she had heard in the field of Moab that the Lord had visited his people to give to them bread. Uh, I'm smiling because there's a, a Hebrew uh, alliteration and assonance happening there. La, to give to them bread is latet lachem lachem. Latet lachem lachem. So, to give to them bread. Now, what does it mean that the Lord had visited? Um, some, some translations will give you a, a kind of a more rendered meaning for that. It meant the Lord had visited. Do you have something other than visited? Considered, Considered okay. Aided, Aided helped, come to help. come to help, okay. That makes sense. Uh, the word there, pakad, is just visit, but means that the bread is back, right? 
there was a famine, now the bread is back, now the, now the famine is over. So she's initially, the, the storyteller tells us that Naomi started out this journey with her daughters-in-law. She left, verse seven, she, she went out to, uh, from the place where she was living and uh, with her two daughters-in-law, with her. Again, it's all from the perspective of Naomi. All the verbs there are in the third person feminine singular, so it's all Naomi's actions, her daughters-in-laws happen to be with her. So they were on the road to return to the land of Judah, and uh, Naomi says to her daughters-in-law, return, go, each woman to the house of her mother. May the Lord do with you chesed. Now we know this word, right? May the Lord deal with you kindly, faithfully, covenantally. Well, these are not Jewish women. These are Moabite women. So the blessing is quite significant. She's almost saying, you know, I hope you become members of the Jewish family or the Israelite family so that you might experience God's goodness. Just as you have done with me, I'm sorry, with uh, the dead and with me. I'm not really sure what that means. How were they showing chesed to the dead? Um, It could be that they've been with Naomi for a while after the sons have passed. Uh, to give support to Naomi could be a reference to that. The narrator doesn't really tell us what that means. Could be before, yes. I think, I think that could be it. The, uh, the statement was, w- before they were dead, right? They, you were kind to them. You loved them before they were dead. So it could mean that. The Lord give to you, or Lord allow you to find rest, or a resting place, or peace, each woman in the house of her husband. So she wants her daughters-in-law to remarry and and find a, a quiet resting place. Then she kissed them. But then the daughters-in-law, they, uh, they raise their voices, or it's actually just, just, yeah, they raise their voices and they wept bitterly. And they said to her, surely we will go with you to your people. Okay, by the way, uh, note that. We will go with you not to just your land, but your people. They're different people groups, aren't they? Uh, Israelites and Moabites. Then Naomi said, uh, Shovna, uh, uh, return, my daughters. Very uh, filial term there, very uh, familiar. Instead of calling them daughters-in-law, my daughters. Why uh, would you go with me? Do I still yet have sons in my womb that they might become to you husbands? Return, my daughters, go, for I am old. I am too old, you might translate it that way. I am too old yet to have more sons. And even if I were to say that there was hope for me, and even if this very night there was to me a husband, uh, and even, even if I bore children, Would you therefore wait until they were grown? Would you shut yourself out from being married to another man? No, my daughters, for it is bitter for me, exceedingly bitter for me, I should say. The word mar, uh, the word bitter there, is the, um, you could think of that as the antonym, the opposite word to Naomi. And she's going to say this word again very soon. Don't call me Naomi, call me Mara, bitter. For, the, for it is very bitter for me than for you, because I'm old, she's saying. Because the hand of Yahweh, hand of the Lord, has gone out against me. Notice here, though, um, 
We've already had God mentioned a couple of times, all by Naomi so far. May the Lord deal with you or, or do with you chesed. Um, and then here again, he sh she mentions Yahweh or the Lord. Uh, in, in your Eng English translations, when you see Lord, do you see it in all caps there? Yeah? That's different from the regular word Lord. Um, that, that, that's called a tetragrammaton, four letters. And those four letters are, in English transliteration, it would be Y-H-W-H, Yahweh. Or you might have heard the word Jehovah. Uh, and that's the name of our God. So Naomi is using the name of our God, Yahweh, to say, may the Lord do this kindly for you. But guess what? The Lord has dealt bitterly with me. And the hand of the Lord has gone out against me. Her theology, though, is striking. Uh, sovereignty of God is right there, isn't it? Whatever good happens, whatever ba bad happens, it is God who is doing it. Okay, let's keep, let's keep going. Oh, oh, man, the next part is just so sad. Uh, they lifted up their voices again and cried, wept bitterly. Bachar, there's a single word there, but it means to weep bitterly. Then Orpah kissed her. Uh, kissed her, her mother-in-law, I'm sorry. But Ruth clung to her. Do you see that? What is your verb for cling there? Is it cling, cleave? Cleave, clung? Okay, the Hebrew, Hebrew word there is baka. Uh, I'm sorry, davak, davak. And guess where that word occurs in the Bible, first time. Genesis, were you gonna guess that? Genesis, Genesis two, you already knew that? Yeah, so in Genesis two, um, I don't know the reference. I'm terrible with references. You know that part where Adam and Eve kind of get married, and for this reason he will leave his mother and, you know, man will leave um, his mother and father and be united or cleaved or cling to his wife? Davak is that word. So we can picture Ruth clinging to her mother-in-law physically, but also the narrator is using a very, very imagistic word. A word that a good Jewish person reading this in the ancient times would have thought, oh, whoa, 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 whoa. That's a strong word. That in indicates like marriage. That's a very, very strong word. We'll see in a, in a minute why this strong word occurs right here. Almost marriage-like word. Uh, English has one way of contrast. So we have a disjunction or we have the word and for conjunction and but or however or nevertheless for disjunction or contrastive. Hebrew has five or six different ways of producing a disjunction. So you can, it can say but, we can say really but. <laughs> like a strong disjunction. Uh, English doesn't have that ability to create weak disjunctions and strong disjunctions. Here we have about a level three one being the weakest, four being the highest. Uh, and the word, the disjunction happens with the word Ruth. So Orpah kissed her mother-in-law, but, strong disjunction, Ruth clung to her. Remember the foil? So now strong contrast. Then she said, look, listen. The Hebrew word hine is perspectival and emphatic. It's when we, when, when we want to like, really get someone's attention and we say, listen, look. Or where are we looking? <laughs> when, you, when you're talking to someone, look. We don't look around, right? We say, oh, I'm listening. So the word here is look, or in, in King James English, it'll say behold. But it's not to really bring our gaze somewhere, but it's to really pay attention. So look. You're... Sister-in-law has returned to her people. Keep this in mind, people, and to her gods. Remember what the blessing was? He, she said, may the Lord deal with you chesedly. That's not a word, is it? May the Lord do with you chesed, the Lord, Yahweh. And she, your sister-in-law, look, she's returned to her people and her God. Shovna, I'm sorry. Uh, after 
go, return. You also, go, return after your sister-in-law. Then Ruth is going to say her piece. This is the most, one of the most beautiful parts of all of the Old Testament. I uh, really wish you, you could read this. I, every time I read this out loud in Hebrew, sometimes I tear up. Um, all right, so it says, Ruth said, do not push me. The word there is strike me almost. The word is a strange word there. It's like, um, I know your translation was something like urge or something like that, but the word is often used as an attack. Force, yeah. Don't force me to leave you. Are there other translations? Don't urge me to return from following you. Sorry? Don't beg me. To do what? To leave. Okay. Um, oh, Azav. Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. You guys know that one, right? My God, my God, why have you <laughs> forsaken me? <laughs> the Hebrew for that Aramaic phrase that uh, gospel writers preserve, the sounds of Aramaic, Eloi, Eloi, lama sabachthani. In Hebrew is Eli, Eli, lama azavatani. Very similar. Aramaic and Hebrew are cognate languages. Azav is to abandon, forsake. I will not forsake you, is what she's saying. Don't urge me to forsake you. If I leave you alone, you may die. You're a widow, you have no sons, you have no husband, you have no recourse to survive. You're an older woman who cannot do the work that I can do, even though I too am a widow. Do not force me, don't attack me, don't push me to abandon you, forsake you, from following after you, for the place which you, um, this is where it gets really, really emotive here, the place where you walk, halach, I will, elech, I will walk, Listen to the, the pattern here. I know you can't understand English. I mean, I mean uh, sorry, Hebrew. But it says, Ki el asher telechi elech. Telechi, that place which you walk, elech. One word. I will walk. Uh, and then the place where which you put your head down, lodge, dwell, however your translation. Alin. I will. Lodge. Amech. Am is people. Ech is second person feminine singular, so your people. Ami. My people. Two words in Hebrew. Your people. My people. Notice she's not putting, she's not mincing words. Just two words. Your people is one word. Amech. Ami. My people. More significantly, your God my God. So that blessing that, that Naomi had pronounced, Ruth is embracing it. Yes, I want this God. She must have heard about Yahweh from Elimelech, from Machlon and Kilion and Naomi. And she says, no, 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 I'm not going back. First of all, I'm not going to forsake you. And guess what? I want to be a person uh, of faith in this Yahweh. And later on, Boaz will say, you've come to seek refuge under Yahweh's wings. So he recognizes that too. By the way, the, 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 that coupling, um, could someone look up, uh, I think, Exodus 6. I can read Hebrew, but I can't scan Hebrew, and that's the hard part. <laughs> like Just looking for something really quickly is really hard. Uh, Exodus 6. Around, I'm, I'm, th I'm, th I'm, th I'm thinking about verse six or seven around there. Could you start around five or, five or six, Exodus six, and read out loud for us, someone in, in English? Five. Around six, yeah, chapter six, I think. Chapter six, Exodus six. Yeah, six, five. Start around there, five or. Moreover, I have heard the groaning of the Israelites whom the Egyptians are enslaving, and I have remembered my covenant. Therefore, say to the Israelites, 
I am the Lord, and I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians. I will free you from being slaves to them, and I will redeem you with an outstretched arm and with mighty acts of judgment. I Here it comes. Keep going. I will take you as my own people, and I will be your God. That's good. Thank you. Do you hear that? So it begins with the record of uh, a recollection of I, I'll bring you people. You know, you're my people now, and I will be your God. That coupling of people and God, I will be your God. You will be my people, occurs throughout the Old Testament as a reference to that covenant. So when when Ruth says, when Naomi says, hey, she's gone back to her people and her God. You go back too. And she says, no, no, no. Your people, my people, your God, my God. It is a clear indication. I want to be part of the covenant. At least the author is allowing us to, that glimpse into this person. All right. <laughs> uh, so much more to, to really uncover from verse 16, but we, I think we should move on. Uh, are we at verse 17 now then? Yes? Okay, so she continues her poetic, poetic this is very poetic, by the way, uh, and, and dense. So that place which you, would, you die, I will die. Again, one word. So she, she draws out the beginning, uh, that place which you die, that place which you walk, that place which you, where you lay your head. She draws out the beginning and boom, Elech, Ami. So long accent, long accent. It, it builds that way. That place which you, where you die, I will die. One word. And there I'll be buried. And thus may the Lord do to me and even more if, and then here's a translational uh, difficulty there. How does, your how does your version render this part? Thus the Lord shall do to me and more if, sorry? If death parts me from you, or if death, sep if death separates us. Yeah, so if anything but death separates us. Um, so there's some translational difficulty right there. It literally says, if death separates me from you. So it's a pretty strong statement either way. If it's, if it's, if it's saying, you know what, even death will not separate me from you or anything but death, right? I will not leave you until I die. Either way, it's a very strong statement. Or, as we might phrase this in a different way, until death do us part. Remember Dabak, cling, cleave? Uh, here is another very marriage-like reference. Now, there are, um, I don't know what to call those scholars, let me be diplomatic. Imaginative scholars <laughs> who think that Naomi and Ruth have a lesbian relationship here. Uh, I, I don't know where they would get that. I mean, I can see that kind of strong language being kind of suggestive of marriage. I can see that. But I just can't imagine the ancient writers thinking that as they wrote this, right? Uh, so if the author would have never intended it, to read it from that text would seem not exegetical, reading out of the text, but reading into the text, eisegetical. So uh, I, I would strongly disagree that there is anything other than this devotion of a daughter-in-law. Later on, her um, neighbors will say, you know, she's better than sons, 10 sons. So uh, it's almost like a daughter relationship, right? A daughter saying to her mother-in-law, or her mother, really, at this point, since her husband's dead, I'm not gonna ever leave you, because without me, you would die. Me leaving you would be me forsaking you, abandoning you. Uh, then the regular prose picks back up again, verse 18. Uh, when she saw that, uh, oh, this is an interesting word, she made herself strong. <laughs> she made herself really, really strong. There's a reflexive verb there. means she just was so determined. 
She made herself strong, unbudging. Uh, she stopped talking about it. <laughs> it's like, okay, I'm not going to win this argument. She gave up. Naomi gives up. Verse 10. Uh, we might, I'm, I'm sorry, 19. Uh, we might actually make, no. Uh, so then they went. Now the verbs take up the dual form, uh, the feminine plural form. So it was all about Naomi first. All the singular verbs of Naomi did this with her daughters-in-law. Naomi said this, Naomi did this. Now the two of them, and the Hebrew makes that clear, both of them, Shetahem, two of them went together. Uh, to, until they, right, wh- wh- right when they're about to enter Beit Lechem, Bethlehem, and uh, as they were entering Bethlehem, there was a, what is your translation there? Like a stirring uh, uprising or some sort of craziness is there. Uh, Tehom is um, a tumultuous thing happening. In the entire city, Kol Ha'ir, and the whole city, whole town, because of them, and they said, and, and the verb there is uh, in the feminine plural, so you're supposed to understand there are women here speaking. Uh, they're saying, they said, Hazot Naomi? Is this Naomi? Now, it's been at least 10 years, if not more, so she has changed. Also, she's gone through a lot. So perhaps her look differed, differed from when she left. So not only has she aged 10 years, but she has aged 10 years as a widow and a mother of two dead sons. So they're asking, uh, is this Naomi? And she says to them, I'll take her, do not call me Naomi. Call me Mara. Uh, and either your footnotes or some translational thing will tell you that means bitter. So don't call me lovely, pleasant, sweet. Call me bitter. For um, the Shaddai. Um, how does your translation render Shaddai? Almighty. Do you know that song El Shaddai, El Shaddai, Shaddai? That's the word Shaddai there. For the Shaddai has done something here. But Shaddai is, is a strange reference to God. It, it, I mean, it does seem fairly common just because of the song Shaddai. Uh, but really, this word means something like fields. So what does that mean? The fields. Uh, so, so El Shaddai, so God has done something bitterly with me. So there's a playfulness there in, in the language. Since God has dealt with me bitterly, call me bitter. Don't call me Naomi. I went out full and empty I have returned by the Lord. I have been returned by the Lord. Lord brought me back empty. So why do you keep on continuing to call me Naomi? Then there's a, pa- there's a part that's hard to understand. The Lord has afflicted me, and the Almighty, or the Shaddai, has done evil to me. Uh, the word there is evil. And so she is either saying what I've experienced is evil, or she's blaming God for doing something that God should not have done, which is evil, killing her husband and her sons. I can see her perspective, though. When you, I mean, it might put yourself in her shoes. I, if I had lost my wife and child, I don't know how happy I'd be with God. If I accuse God of evil, I think my friends would understand. Unless they're like Job's friends, right? Uh, Job's friends didn't understand. But I can see why Naomi says, the Lord has afflicted me, oppressed me, and he has done evil to me. Some translations will uh, render that calamity, uh, I think only because other passages, and like in Jonah, we talked about Jonah, the narrator says God has done ra'ah, evil. 
right? God is planning to do Ra'ah to Nineveh, and since the people in Naham repent of the evil that they were doing, God repents of the evil that God had planned to do to Nineveh. So often we don't feel comfortable saying evil about God, so translations will say calamity. God is about to bring calamity, but the basic root word, uh, Ra'ah, is evil. And so we have to work through it theologically and not necessarily translationally, I, I, don't, I don't think. Uh, we're out of time, but should I stop here or finish? We're, we're one verse away. We have 10 minutes? Oh, okay. We do? Five minutes? <laughs> okay. <coughs> Excuse me. <coughs> Uh, so then Naomi returned. This time again, returns to the singular, uh, third person singular verb. But then it says, with Ruth. The Moabite. We know she's a Moabite, so why is the author telling us again, oh, 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 oh Ruth was a Moabite, remember? Remember? This is significant. Uh, it's going to become significant later and later. Um, uh, the more we go, she's going to be she's going to be referred to as two titles. She's, Ruth will have two titles from this point on: the Moabite, the daughter-in-law, the Moabite, the daughter-in-law. So everybody's talking about her. So uh, we're supposed to imagine the the neighbors, these women, especially since the verbs are plural feminine. Uh, these neighbor women saying, "Oh, whoa! Ruth came back with a Moabite woman. Look at that. What'd she do that for? Moabites don't belong here." Ruth the Moabitess, her daughter-in-law with her. And she had returned from the field of Moab, and they uh, entered the, the city, or the town of Bethlehem, during the, as the beginning of the, uh, the, the barley harvest. So there are two harvests uh, in, in Israel. Barley is the first one. It happens earlier, the barley harvest, and then about a month and a half later, the wheat harvest happens. And so later on, uh, in the second, second chapter, we're gonna see there's a passage of time that happens uh, from chapter one to chapter two. So at the very beginning of the barley harvest is when uh, Naomi and Ruth return. By the way, uh, since I'm time, I'm just going to talk about this and then we'll, we'll stop here. The genealogy that ends at the end, uh, at the end of the book, we'll talk about that when we get there. It's a genealogy of David, and that's why we began with the city of David, Bethlehem, and the story will keep coming back to Bethlehem. Whenever it leaves it, the word Bethlehem, Bethlehem will, come, will keep coming back. So it begins with Bethlehem, goes to the fields of Moab, Bethlehem, threshing floor, Bethlehem, the city gates, Bethlehem, it co keeps coming back. And that's called a circle composition, so because it keeps coming back to Bethlehem over and over. Um, and so some people have suggested that this book, uh, Book of Ruth, was written as kind of a legitimizing story for David to explain, hey, this Moabite woman is David's great-great-grandmother. What's the deal? You can't have some Moabite person as our king. We're supposed to only have Israelites as king, as Deuteronomy says. So some people have suggested that. But here's the problem. Uh, no, that's not the point. The prohibition in the Old Testament to not intermarry was a religious one, not an ethnic one. As long as they converted to Judaism or Israelite religion, that was perfectly fine. In fact, there are three women mentioned in the genealogy of, of Jesus in Matthew, three women. Tamar, Rahab, and Ruth, and two of them, Rahab, Canaanite. Uh, happens to be, guess what? Boaz is mom. So Boaz is like, for him to marry a Moabite woman would not have, been, would not have seemed so strange for him. It's like, oh, my mom's Canaanite. This very beautiful woman, Rahab. So, uh, Oh, man, I wish we had more time. Anyway, we'll, we'll, pick up, we'll pick up here. There's so much more. Yes? Just that phrase. <coughs> she returned to her people and to her God. Mm -hmm. If I were an evangelist, mm -hmm. here are the people of one God, and they are from Moab, mm -hmm. which has many gods. Mm -hmm. One has chosen mm -hmm. to stay with the land of one God. Mm -hmm. 
That pain in the neck. <laughs> oh, yeah, Orpah. We never did talk about that. Her name's Orpah because she leaves. And what do you see when somebody leaves? Right here. That's her name, Orpah. Yeah, she leaves. So, right. Yes. Thank you. Thank you. Yeah. It's, a, it's also, yeah, it's a very beautiful uh, allegory, if you will, a metaphor for our conversion experiences as well. So thank you for bringing that up. All right.